This morning we're in the Psalms. Uh, we've been uh, started the Psalms last week. Uh, what we're doing with the Psalms is we're using them to guide our season of prayer that once a year we take a, uh, a little over a month uh, following Easter to really pursue uh, what Charles Spurgeon described, the holy art of prayer. That for us to be the people that we are called to be in this place, in this moment, uh, the main thing that we have to be students of is the art of prayer, uh, the, this holy practice of prayer. And so we are doing that uh, again this year, and this year we're using the Psalms as our guide. Uh, and we actually have printed up little things in the back next to communion. So when you take communion, if you didn't get one last week, uh, there's plenty for you uh, to take this week. Uh, I want to start by telling a story of, of one of my really good friends. Uh, he uh, we met him, he was a neighbor of someone in our community years and years ago, and he came to different parties that we threw. Uh, there was a night where we were uh, doing a, a charity poker game, and he and I were really bad at poker, and so he went out really quickly, and I really only watch Western movies, so I did all in really quickly. I was like, this is fun. Didn't know, we were out, we talked a lot about life, and uh, he was a law student, uh, and talked about his desire to be an environmental lawyer, an advocate, and things like that. And he became part of just like the relational part of our community. Uh, a few weeks later, uh, a person in our community went out with him and just said, you know, like the thing about Jesus is, is he died and he rose again and he saves you from all your sins and he makes you like alive with him. I don't know what that means for you. And my friend Matt said, you know what, I think I'll believe that. And <laughs> My other friend in our community was like, I don't think people do that. Like, just hear the gospel and then say yes. Especially not lawyers. I'm just kidding for y'all. Lawyers. Anyway. Uh, that was a funny joke, right? No, not a funny joke. Anyway. Uh, he came to our first missional, uh, missional community meal where we were eating, and in the middle I made this impassioned talk about how as believers, as missionaries uh, that God's made us, we ought to uh, care for the world around us, which includes serving this elementary school. And so we had this opportunity to go and do groundskeeping for an elementary school in our neighborhood. And, and my friend was like, ah, well, then I guess like that's what Christians do. I'll show up and I'll do that at Saturday morning. We, he came and it was just me and him and one other guy out of a group of like 30 people. And I was like, ah, oh, now he knows what it means to be a Christian is to not show up to serve. Uh, but anyway, I was really disappointed. We basically spent the whole day shoveling chicken poop uh, to make the flowers grow more vibrantly. And then in the middle of it, uh, he asked me, he's like, I guess you should teach me how to pray, Brad. I think that that sounds like an important part of being a Christian is knowing how to pray. And I was like, oh, yeah, that does sound important, and I should teach you how to pray. And he goes, well, so could you tell me what is prayer exactly? I was like, well, prayer is communing and having this relationship, this conversation with God. And he's like, like creator of everything, God. Yeah, so you get to talk to that God. Yes, like Jesus, you get to talk to him, the one who died, who rose again, the one that you're just starting to believe in, you get to commune and talk with him. He goes, wow, you all must pray all the time. Like, this is amazing, this is incredible. You get to talk to God, you get to know him. 
And I thought, yeah, I guess. And then I tried to explain that, you know, really our community doesn't always pray. Uh, and we can go days without it. And, and I don't want to guilt anyone here. And anytime I've told this story, I've tried not to guilt anybody or motivate you with the, oh, shucks, I should do something that I'm not doing. Uh, but I also just don't want us to miss out on the beauty and the amazing reality of prayer. Um, I don't want us to, to miss out on that. Uh, it's kind of become a little bit of a commitment I have had since that day is to not assume that people know how to pray or even want to pray. It also put me on this little internal journey processing, like, why is it that we as Christians don't like to or don't run to or prioritize or whatever word you want to say, prayer? Why is it that we don't do that? At first I thought, well, maybe people think prayer is boring, you know, and we should spice it up. We should give people new, unique ways to pray. Maybe it's just become rote for them. Uh, maybe we should spice it up, give people tons and tons of different ways to pray. And then I thought, no, that's not it, because that wasn't working. And I thought, well, maybe if we gave people what to pray, that would work. So, like, read this prayer book. I'm a huge fan of the common book of prayer. It's one of the things I collect when I travel around uh, to different places is to get, like, the book of prayer from Australia or uh, Canada or different places like that. And it's like, oh, that'll help us. But then it doesn't. And then I thought, well, maybe it's just because people are too into technology. Like, there's so many distractions. There's all this wonderful entertainment. I mean, really, can prayer, talking to the creator of the cosmos, really compare to Netflix? Like, that's hard to compete, right? And then I think I've kind of landed on this, and it's a little bit more devastating than those other things. I think we don't pray uh, because we don't believe that prayer matters, that prayer works, that prayer is significant. Uh, you can go back into other sermons I've done and be like, Brad's already preached this sermon before, if you've been here for a while. Uh, but I've kind of made it a little bit of an internal plan to give a sermon like this every year. That is this, this reality that maybe we don't believe prayer matters. Deep down, it just doesn't work. Uh, and today's psalm takes us there. It's Psalm 34. Uh, it takes us into this conversation around, does prayer actually work? Is it worthy? And so it is. It's Psalm 34. And this is what it says. It says, I will extol the Lord at all times. To extol is to, to celebrate, to, to throw a party, to you know, put up really, really high, to kind of like give awards. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory the Lord. Let the afflicted hear this and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt or celebrate his name forever together. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him 
and he, God, delivers them. Then he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lion may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you how to fear the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. And he says, the Lord will rescue or redeem his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. This is God's word. It's a great psalm. And you're like, what does that have to do with not believing in prayer? You'll see. This is a pretty simple psalm. It makes a lot of sense. This person says, come, like, let's celebrate how good God is. Let's just, you know, join in with me. You can kind of think about a child who's going on this amazing parade through town. And they like, you know, like, come and get behind the parade. You know, and there was a great Cigaros, which I, it was a band a long time ago. Uh, they had a great music video of this little boy playing this, you know, drum. And he walked through town and everybody followed him through all of these green pastures. And that's kind of what this psalm is about. It's like, come, come get in line and let's celebrate. Let's throw a huge parade because God is so great. And then he kind of turns. He's like, hey, if you're having a hard time, if you're having a hard time, here's the thing. Just seek God. Just taste it, you know? He's so good. And, and the language is not about like, I know sometimes you get so hungry that whatever you eat is good, right? It's like, this is the greatest meal. If you go to a restaurant after a long hike or something and you're eating, you're like, this is the best burger I've ever had. Before you tell anybody else to go get that burger, you should go back when you're not starving. You know, just do us all a, a favor. But this is talking about, no, when you're not even starving and you sit down and you start to eat it, that's how good God is. Taste and see. He's like, if you're having a hard time, just seek him. And he tells his own story. He's like, I was a poor man once, and I asked God, and he delivered me. So what should you do? You should seek God, and he'll deliver you. And then he gives a few instructions, like, hey, don't, don't lie, don't deceive people, but bless the Lord. Uh, turn away from doing evil, do good. Pursue it. Become a person who pursues peace. And the Lord, he will put his eyes on you, and he will hear you. The Lord will be near the brokenhearted, the crushed. Cry out to him, and he'll be right there with you. 
He'll save the crushed in spirit. Like, kind of like Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And, and, you know, you can, there's plenty of examples where this works out. You know, you pray, and God answers, right? Uh, you, you pray for a check, and it, and it comes. Or the person's in the hospital, and you pray, and, and they, they get better. Uh, you pray for your baby to get out of the ICU, NICU, I guess, not ICU. That'd be, they'd be old. You pray for your baby to get out of the NICU, and then they do. Uh, you pray for a job, and then you get one. Uh, you pray for a friend, and then you have one. You get stuck, and, then so, and you pray, and you get out of the bind. That's what this psalmist is saying, which it sounds perfectly good. Celebrate God, seek him, and you will be saved. If you're in a bind, pray, and it will be answered to you. You'll get out of it. Pray and have a good life. He even says, hey, whoever of you loves life. You guys love life? This psalm's for you. Anyone who desires to have many good days. Do you want to have good days? I've recently just been praying for some good days. He says, this is easy. Keep your tongue from evil and you'll get them. But if you seek him, this is my my question. If you seek him, and if, and if this is how it works, that if you seek him and if you do good and you, you, know, you pursue him and you taste that he's good, and he always rescues the afflicted, then why would he have to be close to the brokenhearted? Wouldn't their hearts always be mended? Right? Why would you need to cry out for help if he's always right there, ready to secure victory for you? How could you have a crushed spirit if you're feasting on this incredible meal all the time? He even says uh, in verse 12, he says, the righteous person has many troubles. Why does a righteous person have many troubles if it's as simple as seek, taste, he's good, he's right there. Join the parade, right? It's kind of like, uh, you know, if anything goes wrong, It should be fixed right away because you cry out and he delivers. It's kind of also like when people say flying is perfectly safe. Get on an airplane. It's completely safe. Then why do they have the videos? If flying is perfectly safe and there's never any problem at all, why do they have the videos? Why do the people who are in charge of controlling the planes so stressed out if it's perfectly safe and no problem at all. It's also like when the Titanic, when they're building it, they're like, it's unsinkable, it's indestructible. It's probably the most apt example. Then why did they even have lifeboats, right? It's like, why have lifeboats if it's unsinkable? Why would God have to say through this psalmist, look, I'll be close to the brokenhearted, I'll be close to the crushed, if all you have to do is seek him, taste him, cry out to him, and he's going to be there, and he's going to come good for you. It's like, why are there, you know, Psalm 42, 1, some of the most famous lines of the Psalms. It says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. My soul is thirsty for God. 
thirsty for the living God. That's Psalm 42.1, right? A lot of times that's insp- inspirational. Uh, you can, there's so many songs that have been written with just those words. So great. It sounds like a person who just longs to seek God. But the next line is this. When shall I see your face again? Basically, where are you? Psalmist goes on in chapter 42 to say, my tears have become my food day and night. See, it's not the psalm of a person drinking deeply. It's the prayer of a person who's like completely parched, uh, living in the desert, longing for water. If those who seek him get what they need and are always delivered, then why are there psalms like Psalm 35? Uh, Psalm 35, 17, it's on the same page for you probably, or a few scrolls down. It says this, How long, Lord, will you look on and not rescue me from their ravages, my precious life from these lions? Why is that a psalm? Psalm 39, 12 Uh, says this. It says, hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you like a foreigner and a stranger, as all my ancestors were. I mean, this person was having a real bad day. They're like, I keep out calling out to you. And it's like we've never even met. Not only that, all my ancestors, you treated them the same way. Why do those psalms exist if the equation is seek, taste, God is good, and you'll have it and you'll be safe? Why is it that we, in the same way that we prayed and people get out of the hospital, we pray and people don't get out of the hospital? Why do we pray for better jobs and they don't come? Why do we ask for restoration in relationships and friendships? and they don't happen. And I don't want to be an absolutist. You know, I'm not going to use always or never uh, because I've been to counseling and I know better, right? But sometimes, just sometimes, sometimes it doesn't seem, right, like prayer works, like that equation happens. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote in his book, A Grief Observed, Uh, Basically, that whole book is is, uh, C.S. Lewis writing his own personal psalm, which we're asking you to do each week. And so hopefully you try it. And this is going to, this is, you know, one of the greatest writers ever examples. So you'll be able to get right in on it. Uh, But basically what happened is he he was single for a really long part of it, so much of his life. He, He wasn't even looking for love, fell in love with this woman named Helen, uh, She has cancer. She comes in and out of remission. They get all of these positive signs, and then she dies, leaving uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, Jack was how he was called, uh, with her son, who was like 10 years old. And together, they just cried together. Uh, Anthony Hopkins was in a great movie uh, called Shadowlands. It's about this story, and it's about that book that he wrote, Grief Observed. And he writes his own psalm, basically. And this is what he says in it. He says, sooner or later, I must face the question in plain language. What reason have we, except out of our own desperate wishes, to believe that God is 
by any standard that we can conceive, good. He goes, doesn't all the evidence suggest exactly the opposite? What have we to set against that argument? And he goes on and he says, what chokes every prayer and every hope I have is the memory of all the prayers that Helen and I offered and all the false hopes that we had. And he goes, not hopes raised by our own wishful thinking, but hopes that were encouraged, hopes that were even forced upon us by false diagnoses, by x-ray photographs, by strange remissions, by one temporary recovery that might have ranked as a miracle. But step by step, we were led up that garden path time after time when he seemed most gracious. It actually felt like he was really preparing us for the next torture. That is his psalm. Why are we, some of us, so brokenhearted? I think that little reading is the definition of brokenhearted. If we're praying, won't we be delivered? But we all know that's not life, if you're the brokenhearted. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You might not have sat down and written your own psalm, but you've felt those things and you've lived those things. You might even be living them right now. If that's you, if you felt that before, you're feeling it now, I hope that you would lean forward on your front seat because you're going to need what I'm gonna say next. But also some of you are people that are like, I don't know, life's been pretty good. I mean, sometimes I conjure up challenges, you know, like I got into my second preferred school, not my first preferred school. There was that time my parents weren't super perfect. You know, like you can conjure those up for you, but it's mostly been pretty good, smooth sailing for you. And you might think, ah, this might not be for me, but pay attention because you're gonna need this one day. And the truth is, it's hard to see a beautiful sunset from the, the depths of a pit. It's hard to sing a song of praise and restoration if you haven't sung it before the time that you really need it. Before you need to be delivered, this is what this psalm is about, that you need to come and taste and see that the Lord is good because one day, you're gonna to have to join that parade and you're not gonna know the way if you don't sing it now. And so whether you're brokenhearted or not, you need to know what I'm about to say and you need to hear it, you internalize it, you know, it's for you. Are you ready for the big bomb of truth this morning? Are you ready for it? Prayer actually works always. Prayer always works matters, even when the evidence seems to say the opposite. Psalm 34 is a prayer of a person who's gone through the valley, a person who's not like smooth sailing all the way, no big deal, let me tell you how to be good like me. It's a person who's lived in seasons in the pit where their tears have been their food, where they were thirsty in the desert, where they've been through it all. Same person, spoiler, read the other Psalms that I read, likely also wrote this one. And yet they still know through prayer, this is how prayer works, they still know through all of that, 
through prayer that God is good. They've tasted and seen and they know that God is right there close to the brokenhearted because they've been the brokenhearted. Prayer is connection and communion with God within your desires, within your needs, within where you are right now. Psalm 62, eight says, pour out your heart before him. He is a refuge. More on that word later. But Psalm 126 says this, when the Lord restored the fortunes, this is a communal uh, prayer that people were praying and singing as they came back from exile, where they had been through the worst of it, the worst that we could ever imagine. You know, like imagine refugees storming through Uh, village out of village, but not as refugees, as prisoners. That's what they experienced. And this is what they sing, when the Lord restored our fortunes. We're like people who could dream dreams again. And we had shouts of joy. Then it says this, it says, those who sow in tears reap with joy. Those who go out weeping into the field, into this world, will always come back with shouts of joy. I see prayer has this really big range, big enough for all of the emotions of life, big enough for all of the circumstances of life. Uh, You know, as a child, I thought prayer is really good for food so you don't get sick and so that somehow it'll bless the nourishment of my body. I don't know if I knew what nourishment of my body was. I also was like, God was trying to do a miracle for sure because it was like, you know, beefaroni casseroles, and God made it nourishment to my soul. Prayer has a range for that, but also I am at death's doorstep. Or the ones that I love and cherish are too. Or I haven't seen or conceived as a, of, a, of a brightness or a light or of a good day in years. Prayer has a range for that. Uh, Hannah Moore, who was a poet, a writer, an abolitionist, uh, she was quite famous in her day, but she wrote this. She said, prayer is not eloquence, but earnestness. Prayer is not the definition of helplessness, but it's the feeling of it. Not figures of speech, but earnestness of soul. The repeated call through this psalm and many of the other psalms is seek God's face in the presence of the mess because he's close to you. The the most real version of you, the version without the facade, without the bravado, without the plans and the strategies, without the script of what to say, God is close to you. This is a prayer for God's uh, himself, when the, the person's talking about, oh, you, if you want good days, if you want deliverance, it's not from like, you know, your 1,000 square foot house to a 2,000 square foot house. It's from not with God to with God. That's the difference. See, the poet isn't holding on to, oh, I still believe in God because there was this one time God did the good thing right? Uh, That's how often we try to maintain our faith. 
is we say, well, I do remember there was that one time I prayed and God answered, and so I can continue to believe because of the one time. That's how we try to keep belief. No, this, this psalmist, he's still believing, he's still praying, he's still calling others to pray because he always gets the good thing. He always gets the thing that he prays for, and that is God. C.S. Lewis, he also theorized in that book, and within his grief, he said, maybe my cries are so loud for the voice of God that I cannot hear the voice that I'm begging for. He says that I, the, the droning of my own voice, he eventually gets frustrated with like, I'm just crying out to God, why, 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 what are you doing, where have you been? And then he realized like, maybe I can't hear God's voice because I only hear my own. Maybe I need to listen and experience the crying out, the voice that I'm crying out for. And what I would say is that this isn't a prayer for some sort of therapeutic dialogue with like the, the counselor who's over the cosmos, right? Like, ah, I just wanna have, like God is my therapist. That's not what this is about. This is about an encounter with goodness itself. And that's what's required. And so the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's talking about a, a, a personal digestion, a personal uh, in-depth encounter. When he says, come and taste for yourself, put it inside of you, a personal understanding Prayer is always tasting and seeing that God is good. The psalmist says, my boast, uh, my soul's boast, the thing that holds up my soul is the Lord. And this is something that I don't know if we get into often enough with prayer, but prayer requires a belief and requires an understanding. This is like, I guess, the only requirement to prayer. It does require belief and an understanding that God is actually good. It is hard to pray if you don't think that he is. And even when things and all the evidence seem to point the opposite, but prayer, when you come to God with this root thought of, I believe that somehow he is still good. How is he good? That's a good question. Thanks for asking everybody. God is good because he hears. It's great to get a strategy, right? It's great to get resources, to get a solution, to get a scholarship. All of these things are great, but none of that compares to when someone truly hears you. It's great to have good uh, test results that go your way. It's amazing to get a new job. It's thrilling to get that promotion that you've always wanted. It's exciting to have a child's health return, and that is always good. It's wonderful to be forgiven uh, by a friend. It's always humbling to have debt paid off. But truly, truly, here's the thing. You're alone in all of those things without someone hearing you. That's why we pay thousands of dollars a year for counseling, because it's, it's so intrinsically valuable to have someone see you and actually hear the words that, that you're saying and know the depth of your heart. 
God is good because you are not alone. Someone has stepped into your life. God is good because he hears. That's what the, the inciting incidents and incident in the book of Exodus for the people bound in slavery is not their slavery or not their there's some sort of like, God had this plan for a long time, but it says that God heard their cries. That's the inciting incident. God hears. Uh, Jesus walking this earth hears, sees, knows. He stepped completely into it. You know, what, we're, what I mean by someone who actually hears you is empathy, Somebody who is uh, willing to step into your world and your circumstances and understand it. That is the inciting reality of the gospel. That's what makes the incarnation not just mysterious and awesome and something that has to happen because Jesus can't die without being born, but it's God stepping into your world. God is good. Taste and see. God is also good because he remains. He remains. You know, it's great to have tutors in your life or mentors or people that came alongside you and really believed in you. And they really invested in you, right? Uh, some of those people text me on my birthday. It's awesome. Uh, some will write encouraging notes every now and then. But they don't remain with me through all of the things of life. God is the one who remains doesn't just show up in the right moment, but remains with you. Age to age, uh, era to era, God remaining with you. So what theologians describe as the unity that we have with God or the union that you have with Christ, that there is no place, or the Psalm 139 that, that Nate read, there is no place you go without God right there remaining with you in that mess. And when you think that you're alone, you're not. That's what the psalmist is saying. Taste and see that goodness, not just one that hears and knows you, but stays with you. God is also good because he responds to evil. Talks about it all throughout this psalm. There's all this injustice, but God is against those who do evil. God is against evil. Uh, the, the, the fruit of prayer is not seeing that God is going to somehow make good on some circumstantial things in your life, though he certainly might, but it's that God is going to make good on the thing that truly haunts you, which is evil. He's not providing a nervous distraction for you or a conversation to take your mind away from the things that make you anxious, because at the root of it all, we're afraid, we're tired, we're frustrated, and we think that this incredible evil is going to come to my door. In Jesus, though, all of the wrath, all of the conviction, all of the needing to deal with sin gets dealt with. God doesn't come and answer simply symptom prayers like, God, make us a little bit less evil or teach my son to not punch another kid, you know, just as an example, right? Right? He's not here, so he doesn't know. Anyway, <laughs> Jesus doesn't come to just deal with the symptoms, but he comes for the root. That's what the psalmist is saying. God will actually deal with evil and he will blot it out from all of the earth. And then Jesus comes 
And he comes to deal with this claim of evil on the earth, the wrath that's hanging over this world, as we talked about through our study of Genesis. And it says that he saves us out of all of that trouble. All of that trouble. People shooting each other in driveways, people molesting each other, people creating wars and bombing their own citizens. All of that he came to deal with so you can taste and see that he is good. You think that, you know, and I think, I won't put it in you. I think my biggest issues sometimes are my budget and how it works out. But then I think, wait till my soul actually hears about the eradication of all evil known to humanity. All of death and evil itself. Maybe that might be a thing that causes me to say, let's join the parade and rejoice. Last thing about how God is good, but not the last thing I'll say. God is good because he redeems. He doesn't just deal with evil, but we can pray and we can sit beneath God in prayer in all of the pits and valleys and darkness and good times and bad because God doesn't just uh, take care of the evil, but he actually redeems us ourselves. Verse 22, the last verse, he says, the Lord will rescue his servants. Uh, The Hebrew is really like the Lord will redeem, will buy back, will repurchase the whole life of his servants. Not just he's gonna, hey, he's gonna rescue you out of a bind, but he's going to purchase you again, make it beautiful, restore. He's gonna curve your entire life, every sad thing, and you will experience or you have experienced devastating things. At the end of it all, God will turn each of those things, every single one, every tiny bad day, every little stubbed toe, and then also every lost relationship, it will become not a sad thing, but a good, redeemed, whole thing. That's what the psalmist is saying. Come and taste. He's good. He will repurchase you out of bondage. That's essentially the reality of Christ's death and resurrection for you. That that as we pray, we're acknowledging and we're coming underneath this reality that we were once in bondage, enslaved, left to just have bad things happen in a loop, but God has purchased us out of that and called you and I children of God. Every time you come to God in prayer, you're coming underneath the richness of the good news about Jesus. And so the psalmist says, seek the Lord. Prayer is seeking. And he says, you're going to lack nothing. You will lack nothing. Because with God, you will already have everything. So what are you seeking in this life when things cause you to despair and when life is hard? Or maybe life's never been hard for you, but what is it that you're gonna seek? And who is it that you're gonna hope answers you? Who is it that you're gonna hope will meet you in the sleepless night? Whose attention are you trying to get? Seek. Uh, If you go to Palm Springs, you will, uh, have we all gone to Palm Springs before? Wow, no, not all of us, that's sad. You rectify that one day. I'll, I'll help you understand why it's good. I know the Bougie MC, 
Y'all are called something else in real life. But y'all went there for your MC retreat. I love the desert. Going to Palm Springs, Palm Desert, whatever you want to call it, Indio, Coachella. The per- I had my debit card stolen, and they purchased a bunch of stuff at Coachella. Uh, and I hope they were there for the concert that was a complete disaster. That's my hope for the evildoers. Anyway, if you go out there into the desert, and my family loves it, it's like this wonderful experience. Because in the desert cities, there's beautiful pools, there's well-manicured everything, like perfectly green, lush lawns. And if they're not green, it's not just like in my neighborhood where people just put stones everywhere because they're like, I'm tired of weeds. No, these are like perfectly placed stones. Perfectly placed cactuses, strange things. There's all this shopping that you can do at antique galleries. You can go look at beautiful paintings. The food is really good. Uh, You can sit in the shade. You know, our family will play in the pool that's all nice and wonderful. If it's too cold, if the water's too cold while you're in the desert, you can turn a heater on and it's a warm pool. Amazing what they do out there. And then when you get tired of all of that, you know, you can get inside of your guest house and sit on a plush couch in the air conditioning, pulled up to full blast and watch a movie. I mean, it's an amazing place. Uh, the, the Palm Springs, it sprawls out, as I said, to many other towns that are all really good and lovely. Uh, they all have golf courses and malls. Uh, They have stadiums for sports that I don't know. I guess tennis gets played out there. There's convention centers. People travel from all over to sit in this this place of lovely relaxation. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, Days and days go by, and you don't even know what's happening. I mean, that's how we experience it, at least. And it's really wonderful. And it's also, as you know, completely fake. Like, there was never a, like... The, the, the people that travel across the mountains uh, from Arizona into California, and they go, holy cow, green grass. No, they didn't. They were like, these are some strange plants, and they kept going on to get here, you know, the real desert next to the ocean. But someone eventually said, hey, let's do this thing out here. It's completely fake, but it's completely wonderful, Right? But if you get brave and if you get tired of the cycle of just sitting in the pool and all of that, you can drive 15 miles outside of Palm Springs and you'll find this small protected natural reserve. Uh, Driving out to it, one day Mirella was like, we've really gotta go do this thing. And I was like, but we could sit by the pool and I could drink Pacifico. And so instead we drove out here and it's like entering another planet. You, you, you like instantly become aware of, oh, I've been in the desert. I thought it was just hot. The plants are strange. It's like a, an abandoned world. There's these hard stones. Even driving, you can tell, this ground's getting harder and harder. The sand's just kind of fluttering around. There's these plants that are 16 feet apart from each other, and they're tiny, but they're clearly soaking up all the moisture they possibly can. Uh, The temperature gauge on the car goes higher and higher. Uh, At the moment that I almost decided, you know, we're going to go back, we saw this sort of clump of trees on the horizon next to these rocks, and we kept going. Dozens of these trees, raw and unkept. In Palm Springs, you know, they cut it and they make them look really beautiful, but the the branches of this place, they're just out there, raw 
No one's ever cut them. All of the different seasons of them sprouting, different branches, they're all there slowly drying down. And eventually we parked and then we walked nearly uh, a half mile, a deadly half mile, because you're like, oh, wow, this is what it feels like to actually be in the desert. And then you get to this glimmer, this oasis, and you enter into its midst, and there's water flowing that you can hear. It's gathering in little ponds, little streams. There's birds chirping in the trees. You hear little footsteps walking around. If you look up into the sky, you can see like red-tailed hawks, which is the coolest bird, uh, looking for those footsteps that you can hear. There's a breeze that like bristles through all of these little branches. Over the waters, uh, the temperature is going down so quickly that your whole skin shudders as the sweat kind of leaves your body and you become like cool in this oasis. And you're like, this is actually real rest. The other thing is just fake distraction, but this is real rest. Oasis, this is my nerdiness, is an ancient Coptic word, uh, which just means dwelling place. Uh, the, the Coptics were nomadic people, just like the ancient Israelites, just like all of those people in that world. And yet what they called those little clumps of trees with water, they just called them dwelling place. The Greeks copied that word entirely as they dominated the world. They just said, we'll call it oasis or something like that. And then in English, we copied that word. And so that's what it means. When we say oasis, we're actually saying dwelling place. The Hebrews, though, they made it beautiful poetry. They said things like, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns for it, even faints for it. I say that whole story just for you to know that that is the essence and the reality of prayer. Uh, I'm going to finish by reading uh, that will connect to what I just said, this, uh, the same psalm, but in Eugene Peterson's translation of it. And you'll just have to hear it. He says, I bless God every chance I get. My lungs expand with his praise. I live and breathe God. If things aren't going well, hear this and be happy. Join me in spreading the news. Together, let's get the word out. God met me more than halfway. He freed me from my anxious fears. Look at him. Give him your warmest smile. Never hide your feelings from him. When I was desperate, I called out. And God got me out of a tight spot. God's angels set up a circle of protection around us while we pray. Open your mouth and taste. Open your eyes and see how good God is. Blessed are you who run to him. Let's pray. Lord, we just echo that psalm that we would seek and know that you are good. That we would open our mouths 
and taste. Help us, even those of us that are in hard times, join in in spreading the good news that you are a good God, that you are our dwelling place, that you bring life uh, out of the dryness, uh, that you bring a full, abundant habitat that we get to dwell in, in the darkest, the hardest corners of our life. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and redeeming and restoring what was lost. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.